0: Welcome to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we're glad that you're joining us uh, for another episode of the show. Uh, You know that you can listen to us right here each week, Sundays at noon on KTRL 90.5 FM and streaming on tarletonradio.com. And also follow us on Facebook for related articles. If you missed the show or you want to go back and listen to previous episodes, they are archived on SoundCloud. That's On Politics with Eric Morrow. And you can also download episodes where you get your podcasts. So today we are looking at the events of this past week and focusing on the exodus of Texas Democrats from the House of Representatives Uh, which is uh, something that might be uh, unique to this decade, but it is something that has happened before uh, with the Texas legislature. And so I invited to the show Dr. James Henson from the University of Texas at Austin, who is the director of the Texas Politics Project. Uh, This project is one that we use in our government classes here at Tarleton, especially the data that's provided in public polling. But Dr. Henson has a, a number of years experience looking at this information, the data, looking at government in Texas, and specifically with our focus today, the Texas legislature. In addition to directing the project, uh, which is a collection of enterprises designed to encourage informed interest and engagement in Texas politics and government, uh, he also writes about politics for the Texas Tribune and is a frequent resource for news media researchers and civic and interest groups on Texas politics and government. He is the principal author of Texas Politics, a web text that incorporates original media and polling data that is used in introductory Texas government courses across the state. Welcome, Dr. Henson. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, it's glad to have you on the show and really to, to talk about this and to try to really go back in our memories uh, to something that I think uh, happened in 2003 that for those of us who study politics, who work in politics of Texas, is kind of seared there because of all the drama and political theater that went on around it. Uh, But this is not the first time that Democrats have exited in order to prevent a quorum and in order to prevent legislation from moving forward. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what happened in 2003 and how let's talk about how this compares with what's happening today.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the really interesting things about 2003 that that we'll get to is that it it came at a a different point in the arc, if you will, of Texas political history. So uh, in 2003, the the Republican Party had really just assumed the position of of dominance in Texas politics and government that the current generation basically takes for granted. But this had come after a, a long period of Democratic dominance with a, a period of transition in the late 80s and 90s, but where Texas, you know, for a long time Texas had essentially been a, a one-party state. So when the Republican Party gained majorities in both the state the state Senate and the state House, uh, the Senate happened earlier than when the House in the 2002 elections, uh, they set about a very aggressive redistricting plan that reflected the the Republican victory. Um, Republicans were very new in the majority. Uh, Democrats were very new as a minority party. Uh, and so a fight erupted over these maps that Republicans drew without very much consultation with Democrats. Um, and Democrats first in the House and then in the Senate undertook a, a maneuver much like we saw today in which a a coalition within the Democratic Party was painstakingly built uh, in uh, May of 2003, in which, which enabled the Democrats to organize a uh, little more than 50 members. I think it ultimately wound up at 52, who then left the state, therefore breaking quorum. And, and after consideration of, of several different alternatives, um, uh, there's always a very, you know, interesting human dimension to this. Uh, the Democrats left the state came, you know, were successful in the short term in derailing a redistricting bill, ultimately lost over the course of special sessions um, and implemented and maps were implemented, uh, new congressional and state legislative maps were implemented that were basically fought over for the remain in the courts for the remainder of the decade. But, you know, I mean, I, I think the key comparison now as we think about what's going on now is that, you know, this, this took a, a lot of organizing and, and a lot of cooperation among Democrats to break the quorum, and it really opened up, you know, a kind of open a, a new era of partisanship in, in 2003 that really lasted after that. I think it was, so. It was, it was a very defining moment in in sense of the partisan politics that we very much take for granted now. I think.
0: Well, speaking on that about partisanship, we we are in a very uh, a, a time where partisanship is very predominant on the national level. We see it continuing in in state politics. How how does that national broader national picture kind of feed into this now? Because uh, that's that's. Not not just part of the action, but the interpretation of the action as well. Yeah. Uh, compared to then in 2003, uh, when uh, we might look back and say, okay, well, we 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 there was partisanship, but it, it just wasn't as intensive as as some of what
1: we've seen in the last few years. Yeah, I mean, I think you raised two really great points. I mean, one is you know, as I kind of implied, um, you know, at the time, Texas was just coming out of what you know I, I think it's kind of funny it, you know as as quick, you know already by 2003 people were calling the period of the late 90s the golden age of Texas politics it happened very quickly um because there was a lot more partisan cooperation between the parties um both at the executive level and in the par- and, and in inside the legislature and so you know I, I think as far as the actual operation of politics in the state and inside of institutions, it's fair to say that it was more bipartisan. Now there are some reasons I think that that can get overplayed. I think that the, you know, the key instance in people's memory, particularly people inside the process and people of, you know, maybe my generation and beyond, um, you know, is that, there was a lot of cooperation between the Republican governor of, you know, George W. Bush and the Democratic leadership um, mm-hmm. in both the House and the Senate, Bob Bullock, the lieutenant governor, Pete Laney, then the speaker. Now, both Bullock and Laney were, you know, holdovers from when the, the Democratic Party had a very powerful and influential, uh, rel- you know, moderate to conservative wing. Um, and, and that kind of defined the tone. We still see signs of that. So in, in both chambers, we still see Democratic chair, you know, chairs of committees. That's looking more and more like an artifact of a, of a time gone past. So, the you know, to set all that up is the context, in 2003, uh, you know, we were beginning to see this partisanship erupt as the parties shifted after a about a decade, decade and a half of rough parity as the transition took place. And I think people could see the writing on the wall on both sides. Democrats could see that they were in a precipitous decline. Republicans were very conscious that after a long battle, they they had become the majority party in the state. So the partisanship was just beginning to erupt, and it was erupting in a media environment that was very different than the one we have now. I mean obviously there was no social media right. the internet was less than a decade old um and and I think probably a little bit less appreciated you hadn't seen the evolution of a a narrowly focused political press that we see at both the national and and the and the state level now with uh, things like Politico, Fishbowl, but Politico is really uh-huh. ground zero for all of that. And so I think you're right. I mean, I, I think while if you go back and Google, you can find national coverage of the Texas quorum break in 2003. It's not the massive 24-7 story that, that we're seeing this. I mean, yesterday, for example, right. I mean, I think, right. you know, MSNBC was essentially a quorum break channel for much of the day in their programming <laughs> yesterday. I mean, it kind of happened to have an ox. I knew a lot of the legislature would be on. And that really crystallizes in part. You know between that and then social media in which this is obviously all over Twitter and, and Facebook but particularly Twitter um, you know it's just it's just a different environment that accelerates and and feeds the other developments that have that have fueled what we call this kind of hyper partisanship now
0: so we're speaking with dr. James Henson, the director of the Texas Politics project at the University of Texas at Austin and uh, looking back it was redistricting it was democrats trying to hold on to seats and have some influence on the outcome uh of the of the process trying to have some outcome or influence on the process this time around in a do- little bit different environment but the focus is on on voting it's on election laws it's on what one side perceives as election integrity and the other side is voter uh Uh, reducing uh, access to voters. Um, So it's there are bigger, I think, ideological aspects of this that that are feeding into some of the political divisiveness of it as well. Um, Using this tactic now, uh, compared to 2003, you know, related to the issue, uh, how do you see... You know com- a comparison there and and what is that telling us about this this these challenges that we see within the legislature of getting things done okay so two-
1: part let me take the let me take the philosophical ideological piece and then I'll take the institutional <laughs> sure, piece sure. so the philosophical ideological piece I think is it is um you know remarkably similar in that as you point out whenever you know whenever you're talking about you know and I'm sure this you Probably taught this a million times by now. Whenever you start talking about election laws and voting, we have a kind of idealized view of this in, in some ways, or I think ever, you know a lot of folks do that. You know, voting and elections—they're they're integral to the process. You know, we can take a clear-eyed look at the rules, and it's always very deeply political and, and deeply partisan, and that's generally been the case. So in that case, it's very, it, it's similar. I think, you know, to the extent that there's a difference now, it feeds back to some of the things we just talked about in terms of just the heightened, uh, uh, the terrible, you know, politicalness of all of this and the way that that has become taken on very ideological overtones as the parties have become more ideologically sorted. And so I think that means that we can see the simil- a similar thing in 2003, but we're also seeing it in a more pitched fundamental way. And of course, you know, you've mentioned, uh, I think rightly so, national politics. This is happening in an environment where, you know, despite what I just said about these things always being political, you know, this is as political as the notion of elections and is fundamentally philosophical, as we've seen in in a very long time, you know, arguably, certainly, you know, arguably ever in the modern history of the United States. I mean, this is Really fundamental. Like you have to go back at least to the Voting Rights period and in the mid '60s, where there were fundamental questions about the legitimacy of the system in play. And I think we're seeing a different, we're seeing a version of that, and and it's it's pitched because it's coming from both the left and the right to some degree. And not to make not to say that those are equally valid arguments, but they are both out there. There's a lot of churn on this issue uh, uh, across the ideological spectrum. So in terms of you know how it you know how it plays institutionally voting and 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 redistricting wind up being very personal and individual issues for legislators and and even for statewide officials for participants in politics because you know they it affects them in in what I think we can think of as a very human way because it affects their self-interest and that adds a dimension to this that then manifests itself institutionally, that there are still competing issues out there. So the stakes here, this time, in are fundamentally focused on this. But if you go back to 2003, one of the reasons that the House of Democrats took the chance of coming back when they first went to Ardmore was that there were some other issues that were very important to them that some of the members in the coalition... Really needed, wanted to come back and handle, and in order to maintain cohesion in the co- in the coalition, that had to be taken seriously. I suspect that that is, you know, that is going to be at play in, in what we're seeing now. Um, before too much longer, um, one of the reasons that the Democrats have been able to exercise a degree of cohesion in the House at this point is because of the other big issues that are at play, um, law enforcement issues. You know, other items on the special agenda, like uh, the rights of transgender people, that are very important to members of the Democratic coalition. Not to mention, at this point, the fact that since the governor vetoed the legislative article uh, of the budget um, for the next biennium, there's a very another very personal dimension in that. You know, it, it doesn't really matter that much to the legislators because they're probably going to get paid anyway. They don't get paid much but all of the staff all the support organs of the legislature but particularly the staff i mean this is the livelihoods of of people that legislators both republicans and democrats work with and rely on day in and day out and they're the you know kind of the unseen machinery of the legislature that people don't think of and i think probably to the general public, you say, well, their staff's not getting paid. And people kind of go, yeah, well, that sounds unfair and bad. But then you move on. I think it's hard to uh, to underestimate how integral staff is to the legislators and to the process.
0: So talking specifically about the issues around the legislation here, where you're, you're, you would have agreement on the overall uh, emphasis here of election security or voter participation. I mean, Nobody's going to argue with those those ideas and, and then how it, it's the implementation of it. Uh, I, I've had and I've talked about this issue on previous shows and kind of looking at it from a pragmatic perspective, which seems to be lost in all of this. And I, I didn't know if if you saw any uh, any there might be any cohesiveness around around this. So you, you mentioned the issues that brought Democrats back. In 2003, uh, other issues that are on the agenda of the special session, of course, the threat is that they're going to stay gone until uh, the session expires, and the governor countered today saying, well, either I'll arrest you when you come back to Texas, or we'll just keep calling special sessions until we, we get this yeah. done. Um, but the, the one of the things that I've, I've seen missing in all of this is that discussion about about the, the, the cost of elections, right? The cost of maintaining election integrity and security, the the broader the number of means you have of, uh, of, of voting access. Uh, and so to me, this seems like a generation ago may have been a conversation in the state of Texas that could have happened in the legislature. But to me, this appears as becoming so um, ideological in its focus. And now, and we'll talk, ask you in a moment about this trip to Washington and Mm -hmm. really what they're trying to connect with there, that you can't have those practical discussions about uh, what does this actually cost to do this, to do it effectively, to maintain certain standards, uh, but to be able to to do it across the state. Uh, if, If you were to... If that gets interjected in the conversation, you you would probably feel the heat from both sides in terms of well wait a minute that's not that's not the issue. But to me it, it it seems like it's part of it. But are we at a point where we we struggle on things like this to have those actual conversations of what is it what are the the practical aspects of delivering elections of paying for them really to me what a legislature is there yeah. to do and to, to to know what the boundaries the limits are.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that, you know, I mean, just to take the specific issue of cost, I mean, you know, that issue arises only in a very secondary sense when somebody is trying to use it to their advantage. That's been my impression of watching not all, but a lot of these debates. Um, You know, I mean, to the larger point, I mean, you know, one way that I think, To pragmatically envision this discussion that can incorporate economic costs and then budgetary costs, um, you know, is kind of lurking out there. And that is, you know, that there is basically a trade off over, it's an oversimplified view, but it kind of gets you pretty far. There's a trade off between facilitating inclusion and access to the ballot box and ensuring, you know, a, a consensual degree of security. And, you know, I mean, the word has become ideologically loaded now, you know, the integrity right. of elections, yeah. right? right? And then, you know, right. I mean, those two things shouldn't be, and to my mind, are not irreconcilable in any way. But you're right to point out that those discussions have just not, you know, have not, you know, there's just not been enough territory for those discussions to take place. And and I think there's, there's not, a, you know, there's been a, there's evolved a kind of lack of good faith. Perceptions of good faith of each other, mutual perceptions of a lack of good faith between a lot of Democrats and a lot of Republicans, Um, and 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 that is kind of defining the situation. I mean, my colleague Josh Blank and I did an op-ed that you know circulated. I don't know. I think maybe back in November, right after the election, sort of you know arguing that look there is common ground, and we use some of our public public opinion polling data to say you know there are things that most people agree on on a bipartisan basis. I mean, you kind of started there. Both people most people do want, you know, nobody wants elections to be dishonest or insecure, and most people don't want to, you know, on principle exclude people systematically from voting or make it unduly difficult to vote. Um but there's just not there's just not been either the political leadership or the mechanisms to to make that kind of deal on that legislation, and I think that's that's one of the things that's really looming over this big question of what the end game is going to be for the Democrats that have broken quorum and for the Democratic position on this.
0: Do you, Do you see that as key in in this playing out compared to 2003, where it didn't seem like you had some Centrist leadership, some in in the parties that wanted to try to 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 get this done, uh, uh, in one way or another, uh, is it seems like it's so pitched, uh, yeah, the sides are so pitched against each other now that it's now we're now it's rhetoric, you know, you're gonna get arrested, we're not coming back till August, you know, it's uh,
1: (laughs) yeah, and you know, look, I mean, there was some of that at the time. I mean, you know, I mean, just you know, full disclosure. I mean, you were talking about our memory. I mean, I was around here. I was. You know, in Austin when that all happened, but I was, you know, it was, a, it was a long time ago, and I was, I was reviewing some of the writing about that and then last night and this morning. Um, you know, for your listeners, Steve Bickerstaff has a, who's The late Steve Bickerstaff, who was a redistricting lawyer in the state, who worked for both parties, but mostly for Democrats, later in his career, wrote a book called Lines in the Sand. And the middle chapters of that book really do a good job of presenting the challenges and the ins and outs as this was all negotiated. But the, you know, the, I think the point of that is that you know, I, I think the 2003 experience, as I kind of alluded to earlier, was the leading edge of the distrust and the weakness of the middle in this these kinds of issues that we're now seeing in, in a way full flower. You know, and I, and the reason I think that is that I think about you know, I mean, there's there's a kind of two-pronged approach that the Democrats are, that have fled, that the House Democrats are in right now. On one hand, there is, you know, the kind of swinging for the fences, the you know, the kind of best solution that they have would be for the national congressional Democrats to pass vote national voting rights legislation that would, you know, from their perspective, at best invalidate, you know, or close off the option for some of the changes that Republicans want to make right now. Um, Or the secondary, you know, the second best outcome for them would be the passage of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which would reinstall at least some of the legal challenges or some of the the legal avenues using the voting, uh, a renewed Voting Rights Act to challenge the the measures that the the, the Republicans are are trying to push right now. You know, that's the national piece. The state level piece is that they open up lines of communication with the leadership in the state. And there's a, you know, for lack of a better term, a negotiated deal that's along the lines of managing the trade-offs in the ways that we're talking about. Right. I, you know, I despair of the fact that there's enough goodwill left for that to happen. And we can get into the weeds of why that is. Part of it has to do with the, you know, with the position of a of a freshman speaker in the House and, you know, his own challenges keeping his coalition together on this. Uh, the other is, you know, somebody... That's kind of off stage right now, but that's the the Texas Senate, where I you know, it's a high probability, as one of my colleagues was, you know, mentioning this morning that even if House Democrats could negotiate the kind of deal that we're talking about with the House leadership, I don't think anybody I don't I think the relations between the House and the Senate are so bad, particularly with the lieutenant governor, they'd have a hard time trusting that the lieutenant governor would go along with the deal.
0: Well, it seems like this this tactic at this point in time, especially coming after the Supreme Court ruling on the Arizona laws and what that might hold for what's coming at the, the challenge on the Georgia laws, that, that uh, in one sense, this may be well played in pushing it to that national level. And uh, I think that's where my really next question here is. Uh, and, and, and this may have different facets here. Of course, I know in 2003, they called on the Department of Homeland Security to uh, to go uh, help them find uh, Pete where these was uh, Pete Democrats. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> where where are they? Um, so I don't not necessarily want to go that far because that that plays to the theater. But it's much more the, the, the strategy here of trying to connect now with and, and, and possibly, I guess, lend support to what Democrats are trying to do in Congress, what the Biden right. administration is behind. And and how this this plays out on the national scene. Um, any, any thoughts on that? And seeing the a particular tactic like this uh, in our state legislature and its connections with this kind of broader debate that's going on uh, in state legislatures across the country, and now and even in Congress. Yeah, I
1: mean, look, I think I think, de- I think te- Texas Democrats are are trying to you know take advantage of that. Of, you know, to use that advantage by going to Washington D.C. and and saying that you know there's a Democrat in the White House, there's there we have Democratic majorities in Congress. Uh, the, you know, the House has already passed the HB one, the the big omnibus uh, voting uh, election rights and voting rights bill, which is a few, touches on a lot of other things beyond right. voting, which is part of the issue. But in some ways, they're, they're I mean, this advantage is not uh not without its serious complications i mean the democrats find themselves in in washington dc getting publicly kind of a hero's welcome from progressives and from and from partisans um and of course you know washington democrats are are going to play that are going to are going to receive them in the same way publicly at the same time you know democrats you know the Democrats are 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 struggling to be an effective ruling party in Washington right now, and while voting rights and 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 uh, national you know, you know you know a national election bill is one of the priorities, it hasn't been front and center. And so the Republican you know so the Democratic tactic in in a positive sense is to say we're here to help, we're here to draw attention and help you build momentum to pass this. On the other hand, they're kind of jumping into a pool that they have not been swimming in and mm-hmm. you know, I I mean I would be surprised if there were not some Democrats who have been working on other things like the infrastructure bill, like, you know, both aspects of the infrastructure bill, the physical and the human capital part of it, and are looking at a budget fight coming up, uh are navigating these complicated politics of the filibuster and are kind of saying we're not really all that happy to have somebody else kind of sticking their arm in the machinery um, you know they can't say that out loud but i'd be surprised if there wasn't some sentiment to that effect so you know i, I think it's the you know i i think for the democrats the the my you know my sort of unvarnished opinion is that they they've chosen they've chosen the best of a lot of bad options because they are in a they're in a tough political position oh you know and they are they are so far in the first 24 48 hours of this they've done a they've done an effective job of pressing the you know the ethical and philosophical advantages that they have here um but I, I, you know, I, I think it's an open question is what the half-life of that advantage is okay. going to be.
0: So back to Texas then. <laughs> how How is this playing in Texas? I mean, we, one was, uh, I know in, my, in the past in looking at legislative sessions, you know, the goal is – what can you get your name on one of the goals to go back to your constituents and say hey here's what i did election is a, a you know primaries are a year less than a year away but that's still a lot of time in politics i mean it's that they they have to go back and remind their constituents about what what they did these kinds of things though really again like we were talking about 2003 they they sear in your mind yeah. you know that okay this this was uh, dramatic it was it was very Visible, it was uh, um, uh, something that 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 we don't forget when it comes time for election. Uh, with all your work in in polling and so forth, I don't know if you, if you've, if anything has has happened here in the uh, in the last week, but I know we look back to 2003. Where do you see this playing in terms of Texas, Texas voters, how they view the legislature?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think. I think you have to start with the baseline, which is, you know, even among partisans, the view of the legislature is not particularly warm and enthusiastic. I mean, you know, when we ask about job approval, the Texas legislature, you know, the Republican approval rates are higher because among those paying attention, they like, you know, they pick up partisan control and they tend to like what the legislature has been doing, even given the fluctuations in the content of output. You know, by which I mean some sessions seem to be, like this last session, very conservative session by virtually all accounts. Um, Previous session, less so, a little more pragmatic, more action on education, taxes. You know, more of a, you know, at the time what everybody was calling the meat and potatoes session. And frankly, approval levels don't move all that much because the tension levels are relatively low. That said, this, this particular issue and the drama around it, find a set of, you know, pretty fixed predispositions and attitudes with very sharp partisan differences. So, you know, and some of these are about the rules and the measures. There's some variation in that. So things like, you know, banning drive through voting are kind of less universally popular. Um, things like not connecting election machines to the Internet feels like common sense to people, very popular as they hear about cyber threats. But when you look below, and that's the thing that makes us, you know, kind of optimistic in the way that you and I were talking about five or 10 minutes ago, that if you really look, you can find things that there's bipartisan agreement on, but there's also no partisan advantage to doing that. All right. And the reason right. there's the, the partisan advantage is limited to my mind is that there are set, there are underlying deeper dispositions that are really a problem here that have been been cultivated by partisans, especially the Republicans. But to be fair, partisans on both sides. Um, So for example, you know, if we ask people, you know, how often do ineligible people vote in elections? So in many ways, this is a key concern of conservatives and has been taken up by the Republican party, that there are people out there that are voting that shouldn't be, Um, you know, more than 50% of Democrats say, that rarely happens. Only 16% of Republicans say that rarely happens. And almost a third of Republicans say that people, you know, ineligible voters are voting frequently. Now, if you flip that over and you say, okay, how often are eligible voters prevented from voting? Which is the Democratic concern and complaint about, about election laws. Forty percent of Republicans say no. In, uh, eligible voters are are never prevented from voting. Only four of, of, percent of Democrats say the same. And about a third, more than a third of Democrats say that eligible voters are frequently prevented from voting. Now, I could go on and on with examples on that, and right. I won't. But, right. you know, you could go through our, you know, and, and you can maybe send your listeners a link. You go through our election results, you just see this. This partisan divide in fundamental perceptions about the operation of elections and voting um you know that you know it, it's be foolish to not expect partisan leaders in a pitched fight like that to tap into those attitudes among among their base it's predictable, but it has an unfortunate side effect that it it makes it hard to resolve these things, okay. and it means that both sides are very dug in. You know, to give examples that you've already u- used. So it means that, you know, Democrats are not worried about breaking quorum and heading to Washington D.C. to defend voting rights. Be- in terms of their own partisans' reactions, they have a high expectation of support for that. When the governor stands up and says, even though he doesn't really have the power to do this, to so at least in existing law, you know, as soon as they come back, we're going to, you know, throw them in shackles. Well, his partisans are going to respond pretty positively to that. And so, you know, it's you know, it it gets us into the group, you know, the the the, some of the conundrums of 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 popular democracy that, you know, political leaders have the incentives to respond that way. And and those responses reinforce the attitudes among their partisans. And it becomes very difficult to break out of that.
0: Well, it looks like that may be uh, the tone of the year. if we're going right out of this or into multiple special sessions as the as as governor abbott said we may have into redistricting i mean now we're putting another very challenging issue on top of this and of course all that leading into an election cycle it makes it for a very interesting year in texas politics which i, I know you'll be tracking uh, with your polling and uh and, and other things as well and i want to thank you for joining us today this has been very insightful and looking back at what happened, and I'll post some related articles, and of course, link to the polling data as well uh, for our listeners. But uh, th- this is very engaging and helpful to to kind of get behind this a little bit, uh, uh, behind the scenes a little bit, and look and, and analyze it in a way that that help people to see the the landscape and and what's happening in in Texas politics today. Thank you, Dr. Henson, so much for joining us today. Uh,
1: I enjoyed it a lot, Eric, and uh, I really appreciate the invitation, and and thanks for all the good work you do.
0: We are going to take a quick break, and after that, we will be back with more on politics. Tea for Texas, tea for tea Texas for is a Texas-based tea. history podcast from historian tea Dr. T. Lindsay Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you tea get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we're glad that you are with us today. We enjoyed that engaging interview with Dr. James Henson of the Texas Politics Project, and really digging in in a comparison between the Democratic walkout in 2003, uh, looking at what has happened over this past week, and as that continues to to develop which will follow that here on politics and its political impact what will be the impact on the special session and what are we looking at going forward in terms of what the Texas legislature is able to accomplish uh, during that session uh, with not able being able to have a quorum and of course the the tit for tat is going back now back and forth in terms of the the, uh, debate with Republicans can do about this, what they can engage with in terms of threatening. uh, We will see how that works and and does it bring both sides back to the table uh, to be able to uh, engage in this uh, formulating election law uh, that can find some either bipartisan support or at least a, a sufficient engagement with Democrats so that Uh, The quorum can be held, and this can move forward. If you missed the first half of the show, you can get that on uh, SoundCloud, which after the show airs, it's available. You can get it wherever you download your podcast. And, of course, our show is right here on KTRL 90.5 FM each Sunday at noon. In this last part of the show, there's a couple of issues that I want to discuss. One is to lead off of what was offered by Dr. Henson, Uh, related to the Texas politics project. Uh, This is a very informative project and website, especially if you engage in uh, political issues and policy issues in the state of Texas. We've used information from this site on the show before, and of course, as I mentioned in my conversation with Dr. Henson, we use this in our government classes in order to engage students with current issues, public opinion, and what is happening in the state. How are policy and political issues being perceived? How is government being perceived by uh, citizens across the state? And this is a very uh, solid poll that uh, has been around for a number of years that's very helpful in this area uh, because they really work to uh, engage a broad demographic that's reflective of the diversity uh, of the state of texas i will post a link to it and some of the current polling on our facebook page that's on politics with eric morrow but i wanted to talk a little bit about some of the polling that is there dr henson referred to a few things Uh, but one of the things that is very uh, present right now especially post legislative session are views about the legislative session and certain issue areas and that's always interesting to look at to see in comparison with what happened what issues were addressed what's going on around specific issues here we were talking about elections and voting laws Uh, And then to look at public opinion, how much is the public engaged or what do they perceive uh, to be some of the more critical issues? So the one of the polls that came out recently this uh, past month in June, approval of how state leaders and the legislature handled each of the following issues. And of course, the top issue that received 44 percent approval uh, was Second Amendment rights, followed by COVID at 40 percent followed by election and voting laws at 38%, public safety, 37%, and immigration and border security at 36%. And of course, the other issues that then go down from there that were considered top issues, abortion, gun violence, the state budget, police misconduct, K-12 through public education, the electric grid, which came in at 22%, uh, that reflects uh, some of the, the, the inactivity or what was not able to be achieved on this issue, uh, bail practices, property taxes, and homelessness. Now, the nice thing about the Texas politics site, and I'm not going to go into all these different types of data that are available for each poll, but you're able to look at this overall a compilation of the data to look at it by party ID, to look at by party identification, Uh, how, How do they identify within that particular party? So if we're looking at the Republican Party in Texas, it is either lean Republican, not very strong Republican, or strong Republican. Also by political ideology, which would be liberal, moderate, or conservative. And then they also break that down even within those ideologies, Uh, lean liberal, somewhat liberal, extremely liberal, and the same for conservative ideology. You can also look by race and by gender. So there's a significant amount of data here to be able to analyze these particular uh, questions, data points, and also look at different trends Uh, that try to help us understand a little bit about how these issues play in the public, which can have an effect on how they are addressed in the legislature, especially as coming out of this session, and I said that earlier in the show, where we will move into an election cycle after, uh, starting this fall for the primaries next year, and of course statewide elections the following year, And of course, representatives in the legislature, those in the House specifically, but also those who will be up for re-election in the state Senate, will be looking to show what they accomplished during the legislative session, or at least during this entire year, which uh, will hold multiple special sessions, uh, as it appears now, not only this one, but we could possibly have a second one. Uh, We certainly will have one in the fall when redistricting becomes the focus in preparing the state election maps uh, for the next decade based on the 2020 census. So this Texas politics project is something that I would encourage you to look at. There's always special uh, certain polls that might be of unique interest. Uh, One that I noticed uh, that uh, some may be uh, specifically concerned about the uh, electric grid and what happened this past winter and what we've seen happen already this summer. Uh, it's a poll asking about state leaders and legislative approval in handling of the reliability of the electricity grid, which we talked about uh, with Dr. Eggleston here on the show uh, a few months ago. Uh, when we look at this, we can see that overall 7% approved strongly of how they handled this while 36% disapprove strongly. Uh, when you break that down by party identification, uh, you can see it's much more uh, measured across the board from approve strongly to don't know among Republicans, but 61% of Democrats disapprove strongly of how the legislature handled the reliability of the electricity grid. Uh, so anyway, there there's certainly helps us to get a glimpse of uh, party uh, politics in this uh, party agendas but also to look across the state to see where people are uh, on specific issues. Some of them very controversial uh, like abortion. Uh, others that are current in here in terms of the education, uh, education, uh, the state budget. Uh, that's another one where again, it doesn't always get uh, good approval ratings. Uh, only 9% approve strongly of the handling of the state budget. Uh, Whereas 21% approved somewhat and 27% were in the middle, uh, neither approving or disapproving. Uh, So again, very insightful, very helpful to to see how these issues play out in uh, the general public in Texas. And a site that I will refer you back to again and again, and we will post on our Facebook page that's on politics with Eric Morrow. For the last segment of the show, I want to turn to a federal issue, something that will be before us in the months to come. It has already been given a significant amount of attention and is one of the primary areas of focus currently of our U.S. Congress, and that is the Bipartisan Infrastructure Plan, initially proposed by the Biden administration uh, to address numerous infrastructure areas across the country, uh, but also has been a, a working product in an order to get that bipartisan support in order to get the votes that would be needed in the Senate in order to approve uh, such a large uh, plan and, and certainly a, a spending. Uh, the primary focus of this is, or in terms of spending looks at 973 billion over five years uh, with additional or up to 1.2 billion. Um, 1.2 trillion, I should say, over eight years. So we're talking about an extensive amount of resources being put into infrastructure. This plan, as it was originally proposed, had elements that are supported by the Biden administration that moves beyond just transportation and other infrastructure uh, to uh, human uh, infrastructure, as it's been called, talking about uh, care for the elderly, child care, and so forth. But those areas are much more controversial and are the focus of some of the debate. A lot of the debate currently going on as this uh, an initial version of this moved through the House. Now it's the Senate that's really focused on a bipartisan product. Uh, the, the focus is on spending how, and how to pay for it, the cost of it and how to pay for it. Just a little background here, we're talking about in, in terms of infrastructure and what we are talking about one category is transportation with a total of 312 billion which includes roads and bridges as the primary area uh, 109 billion uh, safety public transit passenger and freight rail 66 billion uh, electric buses and transit 7.5 million airports 25 billion uh, ports and waterways 16 billion and infrastructure uh, financing uh, 20 billion. Uh, Other infrastructure that is listed here is water infrastructure, 55 billion broadband infrastructure for Internet access, 65 billion environmental remediation, power infrastructure and Western water storage and resilience. Now, the challenge in the debate as with these large packages like this and this large amount of spending, is not only over the amount, and that is something that will continue to be negotiated and debated, and for weeks to come, we will probably not see any product of this uh, until for, until months from now. Why? Because it has to get through the Senate, at least the, the the bipartisan part of it. It has to go back to the House so that their bill can be revised, and then it will have to go through the House process. And so. We may not see anything move in the Senate until later next month in August. Thus, it will push it to the fall uh, for anything coming out of the House. But this seems significant in terms of the resources that it will put into infrastructure areas. Now, the Biden administration is proposing a number of different ways to pay for it. Uh, One is to address corporate uh, uh, taxes, to raise taxes on uh, businesses. Uh, there are other areas looking at uh, more intensive IRS um, uh, engagement with uh, to, to generate the revenue there that's being missed uh, by the IRS, so more auditing, uh, especially in the, in the corporate area. Uh, redirecting of unused employment insurance relief funds, so some of this comes out of COVID packages, uh, that unused relief funds from the 2020 emergency relief legislation, uh, state and local investment in broadband infrastructure, uh, expire, extend expiring customs user fees, uh, 5G spectrum auction proceeds, extend mandatory sequester. I mean, all of these are tools and mechanisms and processes in order to try to put the funding together. Because the one of the arguments that's coming from the the from the Republican senators. Uh, and especially in Republicans in the House as well, is uh, spending is extending or deepening the nation's debt, having gone through the pandemic uh, in order to uh, pay for this, and so they're looking at is this uh, neutral in terms of its impact on the nation's debt, and so that debate is going to be ongoing as they look at ways to fund it and how and whether the the Democrats can. Hold on to a group of Republicans that were initially involved in the discussions about this bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill and, and 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 what their influence will be. They hold a tremendous amount of sway right now because they are those votes that are needed given the 50-50 split in the Senate in order to get this uh, to the level of voting uh, to approve it uh, for Uh, to pass it in the Senate and for it to then to go back to the House. Uh, Now, where does this go from here? I think this is one of the things that we want to be watching and looking at the politics of it. So what we're seeing now is uh, the Senate Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer, the Democrat, will be bringing this forward in the Senate. Uh, It will begin that process of debating and engaging with it uh, to see what Accommodations we made. one of the challenges with this, because it is such a large piece of legislation, is that not all of it has been written yet. And so that's been a point of criticism by some Republicans. Of course, large, massive uh, pieces of legislation take time. And so that's the concern right now is that the that this is being prepared, and then it will be put before the Senate uh, for it to be reviewed. And that in and of itself is can be a very political process. Uh, once the legislation is in a text and then can be debated. And so we're going to see that process play out over the next few weeks as the Senate engages with this, as the Biden administration works with the Senate and Senate Democrats in trying to uh, secure the votes that they will need to, to get this passed, and then what will happen after that in terms of going back to the House and the support there and getting the votes that they need, uh, which right now Democrats can't afford to lose any in either chamber in order to get legislation put in place. So this is one of the issues that we'll be following in the months and weeks ahead. Uh, My goal is to have some interviews with people who are uh, engaged with infrastructure, different aspects of infrastructure from rail to public transit to airports. Uh, to uh, broadband infrastructure, uh, just to talk about some of these issues and what the significance of this is, what this will impact uh, in terms of uh, infrastructure that will have both an economic impact as well as a social uh, impact as well. I want to thank you for joining us again today on Politics. We're right here each Sunday at noon on KTRL 90.5 FM streaming on tarletonradio.com and available where you get your podcasts and also on SoundCloud. So if you have missed any portion of this show or you would like to listen to previous shows and the wide range of topics uh, that we cover on politics, visit us on SoundCloud. That's On Politics with Eric Harrell. Thank you for joining us. And Radio Network Podcast with production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Brianna Blanks. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.